0: If you look up mantis shrimp on the internet, you'll see this creature that kind of looks like a lobster, but with incredibly bright, crazy colors and huge eyes.
1: They're really diverse, too. There are up to 500 species of mantis shrimp, but they have different kinds of appendages for capturing prey.
2: Some of them have hammers, and they move it at bullet-like accelerations to smash open snail shells.
1: That's Sheila Paddock,
0: a biologist and professor at Duke University who studies smashing mantis shrimp. And yeah, you heard it right. These creatures can hit their prey as fast as a bullet.
2: The very fastest animals on the planet are attacking the very slowest animals on the planet. <laughs> I mean, think about it, right? So this this in and of itself has like been a real mind bender for a lot of people, myself included.
1: On this episode, we'll dive into the mechanics that give smashing mantis shrimp the most powerful punch on the planet. We'll also discuss how politics and misconceptions about research put Sheila and her mantis shrimp in the national spotlight. I'm Art Woods.
0: And I'm Marty Martin, and this is Big Biology.
1: Over millions of years, snails have evolved shells that resist crushing, breaking or drilling by determined predators. Some of these shells are among the strongest known natural materials in the entire world. And yet, smashing mantis shrimp break through these structures easily to get a meal.
0: So how do they do it? Here's Sheila.
2: The way animals can do this is actually not through muscle. And it turns out what they're using are springs. And the mechanism that they use is very similar to a bow and an
1: arrow. Sheila gives this analogy. Imagine yourself throwing an arrow at a deer. Even if you have really good aim and you're really strong, you're just not going to have enough force to injure it, let alone kill it. But you can
2: use that exact same set of muscles in your arms to load a bow. And release it with the latch, which is your fingers. And the bow itself flings the arrow. Fast enough with a high acceleration enough to take down the deer. In the mantis shrimp's case, they're not like, they're not shooting the arrow, it's, it's their appendage. But they basically are using materials, springy materials, to generate massive amounts
1: of power. And, and can you say how that, that spring works? Where, where is it on the appendage and how does it get loaded?
2: Mantis shrimp have evolved very force modified muscles and they basically flex a piece of their exoskeleton. And the best analogy that I can come up with is it's a little bit like if you could picture a metal ruler on a table and you're holding one end down and you pull the other end up and then you let go, that other end will will slap down very quickly. And the part that the mantis shrimp is flexing is a little bit like that. And so it's a very, very stiff material that then pushes the appendage to rotate around and hit.
0: Okay, so now we know how the hammer can pack such a powerful punch. But that's just part of what breaks open the snail's shell. Sheila and her team figured out that the shrimp have a second secret weapon, one that they discovered when they filmed the mena shrimp at ultra high speed.
2: And I I still remember the day when we're watching the, the images coming off and I could see this formation of a bubble in between the hammer and the snail. And I knew what that bubble was, it's called cavitation.
1: Basically, the hammer hitting the snail's shell is so extraordinarily fast that it pulls the water molecules away from each other. It's like ripping the water, and it leaves behind this tiny little bubble of vapor.
2: When that vapor bubble collapses, it emits heat equivalent to the surface of the sun. It emits light and emits sound. It is a massive
1: implosion. Wow, seems like something out of a Marvel movie.
0: Yeah, but cavitation also happens to propellers on some ships and submarines. All those little shock waves created as the blades spin so quickly wear down propellers, and this creates a lot of noise.
1: That's not so great for submarines trying to disappear into the ocean depths.
0: That's for sure. Cavitation definitely led to some better propeller design during World War II, but it's still difficult to avoid.
1: So to recap, Smashing mantis shrimp produce powerful punches with their hammers, and those punches create a crazy fluid dynamic phenomenon called cavitation. And both of these processes allow the shrimp to break open the shells of their prey.
0: Sheila recorded what all this punching and cavitation sounds like from a dock off of Catalina Island in California.
1: Sounds a bit like boiling water.
0: Yeah, or a bowl of Rice Krispies after you've added the milk.
1: But wait if mantis shrimp are exerting all this force, why don't they break their own hammers?
2: Ah, right. So you can think about the hammer being filled with what kind of looks like plywood material. So lots of layers upon layers upon layers with the fibers oriented in different directions and it reduces crack formation. That's why plywood works pretty well. It's pretty sturdy stuff.
0: And then there's the outermost part of the hammer, which is mineralized, so it's very, very hard. But they also have this tight wrapping, kind of like the outer layer of a baseball. Another way to think about it is a boxer with wrapped knuckles. That wrapping prevents his skin from splitting open upon impact.
2: And that final added detail allows them to essentially hit the snail shell, break the snail shell, and not break themselves.
0: But for the shrimp, there is a downside to all of that force.
2: Now, they do wear their own hammers away. So this is not a perfect material, but they can molt, and every few months they do. But I've definitely seen mantis shrimp where the hammer is worn down to the flesh.
1: That's almost a sad thought, right? uh, Yeah, it is. They probably can't break shells, and so they're starving until the next molt. Right, right. Or or is it a death sentence if they get...
2: Well, they have two, Uh. and sometimes they just switch to the other or they're using one more than the other. But yeah, we've seen some hungry mantis shrimp.
1: Yeah. Sheila's research is generally considered to be something we call basic science. It's science for the sole purpose of obtaining new knowledge. But other scientists have used this information in the engineering world.
2: Materials labs, um, definitely in the U.S. and other places around the world, have been fabricating materials that take those same kinds of principles. And what they're what they're doing is they're trying to find very lightweight, cheap, easy to build fracture-resistant materials.
0: Those are the kinds of materials we want in all sorts of things, from body armor and football helmets to airplanes. But Sheila doesn't work on those applications directly. Her research is several steps upstream from the technology it's applied to, and sometimes that makes it hard to understand why her research is important.
1: You might recall that in episode 4 of Big Biology, we interviewed science writer Carl Zimmer. And he discussed how a lot of basic biology is vulnerable to attack and even ridicule from political figures who just claim it's a waste of taxpayer money.
0: For instance, every year, Senator Jeff Flake from Arizona releases his Waste Book, a list of federally funded projects he and his staff have deemed wasteful.
1: Like many basic science labs across the nation, Sheila's lab is dependent on federal funds from the National Science Foundation and the Department of Defense. But in December 2015, her work was added to Senator Flake's waste book.
0: He said Sheila was studying a shrimp fight club. This guy really loves his puns. Here's more of a conversation with Sheila.
1: You know, I think it's every working scientist's worst nightmare to get that kind of negative attention on a national level and from you know political voices. So, so how, how did you find out about your inclusion in Waste Book? And you know, how? How did the news come to you?
2: Well, it came to me in a really kind of awful way. It was my birthday weekend. (laughs) I opened up my email, and it was an email from Good Morning America ABC News asking me to comment on my research having been included in the Waste Book.
1: How long did it take you to sort of wrap your head around that news and decide what to do?
2: It took me like one second
1: (laughs) (laughs) instant fury
2: yeah no it wasn't instant fury i was like oh man well in part because i am definitely not the first
0: sheila quickly learned that she was in good company there have been some pretty amazing scientists who've also been named in these waste books
2: a lot of my teaching and broader discussions with the scientific community prior to this had been about basic research and the value of basic research because of what I had seen happening to other people. Mm -hmm. So when it happened to me, of course, it was just miserable to realize that, oh, gosh, you know, this is,
0: now it's me. Sheila immediately started reaching out to colleagues, the press office at Duke, really a whole network of people, including the Coalition to Promote Science Funding.
1: Four months later, the coalition invited Senator Flake and his staff to a poster session in D.C., Sheila and the other scientists whose research was included in the waste book had the chance to present their work and talk to Senator Flake face to face. How did that go and do you think you made some headway with him?
2: Yeah, I mean, by all accounts, Senator Flake is a decent guy. So for okay, first, he showed up. And then he listened.
1: Can't ask for more, really, right?
2: Yeah. And so and it was a really cool opportunity to walk him through those original discoveries and the pathways to some applied translational stuff.
0: Sheila asked Senator Flake what he thought was most important from her research.
2: He you know, clearly liked the applied outcome, the products that were coming out from this stuff that I have nothing to do with, but my original research made possible that original knowledge.
1: Senator Flake ended up telling a Huffington Post reporter, quote, this has been enlightening and we want to make sure we are accurate. This is a learning process, unquote.
0: Sheila also spoke to a member of Senator Flake's staff, the person who actually wrote the waste book, about how tough it is to get federal grants for research in the first place.
2: So there is a broad misconception that federally funded scientists like myself, we write up a little something, we deliver it to somebody, and then we get a check in the mail. And this is so far from the truth that it's actually kind of painful that this is a prevailing view of how we get money.
1: I would say the stat that impresses me the most, perhaps, about NSF is that about five percent or four percent of the grant proposals that get turned in every year are funded. So the competition is extremely fierce, right?
2: Yeah. For a comparison, I went to Harvard for undergrad, and that's considered a reasonable achievement—a really hard thing to do. So a four to five percent acceptance rate—that means that, like, you have to get into Harvard. Every time you want to get funding for your lab for a mere two or three years. Mm -hmm. That is how hard it is. It's a reason why people now, young people, are choosing not to stay in science.
0: Even with a grant, Sheila says, the science is still tough to do.
2: And we have to be productive while we're on that grant. So we're looked at. We have to submit huge reports. And if you blow off that money, you're never going to get another one.
1: So how effective do you think the Waste Book is in terms of his political agenda And, you know, does it have the intended effect of undercutting support and funding for some scientific projects?
2: I mean, there are votes and there are decisions about where money goes. And this is part of that discussion, even if it's framed as very goofy and silly. Nobody should be assuming that this kind of funding is going to continue.
0: And for Sheila, this would be a huge loss, not just for the labs that depend on federal funding, but for something that runs much deeper in our country.
1: During a fellowship at Harvard, Sheila met a human rights lawyer from Nigeria who she really admired and considered to be a friend. But at a seminar where Sheila presented her work, she noticed that the lawyer looked really upset. Later, the lawyer approached her. My recollection
2: is she said to me, she said, your talk disgusted me. And she said it really upset her to see money and and resources put towards this kind of work. She had always thought, from being in Nigeria and trained there, that science was an applied subject, that you only did science to solve problems. I don't think I was in tears, but I had to be pretty close. Because this was, this was based, she was saying like everything that I always thought that was useless about me and my choice of career. She's basically like verbalizing all of my inner insecurities. And then she said, she, "She's like, and then I was thinking, and I realized that I want what you have for my country. I want people in my country to be able to go out and discover new things in science. Like I had been really thinking, you know, critically in my own in my own life about whether what I was doing is worthwhile. Literally, I had had conversations, many of them, was." you know, am I using federal funds well? I look, at, I look at my family members struggling to just get kids to have lunch at school to pay their own bills. Like, am I doing the right thing here? And so, you know, it was, it was a really amazing moment and I, I'm so grateful for her to, to have been thinking so deeply and to have had that kind of response and then to deliver it to me in a way that was so life-changing.
0: You can find our full conversation with Sheila wherever you found this podcast.
1: Thanks to Rachel Kramer for editing and production help. Gerard Sapes edits our scripts to make sure they don't sound like academic papers. Haley Hansen and Victoria Doloff handle Big Biology's social media channels. Steve Lane and Romain Boisseau manage our website. Music on today's episode is from Pottington Bear.